and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. And this week we delve into the history of the Maserati Company with the boss of Maserati in Australia and New Zealand, Glenn Seeley. And I ask, is a country of people who love to travel OS and who now can't do that, are they now buying luxury cars? And then I catch up with Catherine Valicia, the 35-year-old running Valicia National Farms. We find out how she rose to the top in a very male industry and why she has banked her success on hiring for diversity. This actually is a very new age woman who doesn't mind falling back on old school methods to get the best out of her very modern workforce. So without any further ado, let's get in the fast lane with Glenn Seeley of Maserati, Australia and New Zealand. Well, there's a, a time uh, in people's lives when they really want to buy luxury and uh, the question is during a coronavirus and during what I think is the craziest recession I've ever seen in my whole life, where retail spending is at a 19-year high, that is uh, the definition of a crazy recession. To see how Glenn Seeley, the general manager of Maserati Australia New Zealand, is actually experiencing the coronavirus crash, I welcomed him to our podcast. Glenn, good to, good to talk to you. Peter, lovely to talk to you. Now, Glenn, let's uh, let's just start off with a, a general explanation of how your business is finding the coronavirus challenge. It's it's a tough environment to work in. Um, the traditional um, signposts that you would normally utilise in the marketplace are not there. It's almost like the old days of the Phillips curve. It was fantastic until it wasn't. Mm. Um, and so we are discovering each and every day that um, we need to find new markers in, on a business. We, we have long lead times. Mm. So it's it's a really tough business to turn. We're, we're not that agile. Our, our lead time here for Australia on vehicles arriving is just over six months. So if something happens in six months, it takes another six months to turn it. Mm. So uh, you are looking always for any sort of uh, signpost and and guide in the marketplace that you can get. Glenn, from what I can see, you know, retail is doing well for a number of reasons, but one really big one is a whole lot of people who spend anywhere between ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year when they go overseas every year. They can't do that anymore. And so they are looking around their house and they're thinking, oh, that lounge is old, the TV needs replacing, and they're actually doing it. Are people actually looking at their car and thinking, maybe it's time I upgraded to a, a high-end car like a Maserati? They most certainly are. Um, if, if we looked at April, April was a, a, a tough month for us as a brand mm. in Australia, but May bounced out strong. June was a near record month and July was a record month. Mm. Um, so that shows how, yeah, on, on the bounce out, it was very strong. So spending on luxury items as opposed to luxury experiences um, tended to be the norm during that month, I would say. And, and history has been that spending on luxury experiences was taking the cash and luxury items was taking less of a, of a less prominence in terms of the budget. So to see that turnaround is actually good for us. Mm. Um, but if you're going to not go overseas and, and you are stuck within your own borders, 
why not enjoy your, your everyday trip? So vehicles like Maserati are, are doing quite well during this period. Yeah. I, I thought that could be the case. Uh, and, of course, it would even, even be better when we can actually go across borders and actually extend the, the, the drivability of our country. All right. But in the past, you've told me that house prices are also a really important indicator. And so far, we haven't seen house prices fall like you would have expected. But as I said earlier, this is the craziest recession of all time. Um, Has there been any house price impact on the interest in buying a high-end car? Look, I've always said there's three, a couple of things I look at. Number one is the house prices. Number two is business confidence. Number two, uh, three is consumer sentiment. And they're, they're three good measures or signposts yep. as to where our business is going to go. Um, at the moment, we, we have declining sentiment in August. We have declining business confidence in August. And we also have declining house prices in August. And our business in terms of August sales is coming off. If I go back to July, we saw uh, reasonable consumer sentiment, reasonable business confidence, and, and house prices, whilst they were coming off, the, it was very marginal in yeah. terms of how much it was coming off. So July July stood well for us. Um, moving into August, August I think is probably more impacted by what's happening in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and certainly for us, we also look after New Zealand. So um New Zealand going back into a level of lockdown is also a little problematic. But the other side of it is, is what we've seen when we look across the world is even after a second phase of coronavirus, the market bounces out and it bounces out. Okay, it's, it's not going to immediately go back to pre-COVID levels, but, but it bounces out quite well and it bounces out in terms of people buy things that they see value in and value is not always the cheapest. Value is the perceived brand equity or, or the perceived value that you're getting in terms of you know, what you're purchasing. So if you're at a stage where you would like to buy something nice for yourself um, and Maserati works for you, um, it's a great time to buy it because you'll never have the chance to enjoy it more than you do now. So oh, if you are secure coming out, yeah. you're feeling pretty good. Yeah. I, I suspect that this was going to be the case because, as I did make the point earlier, this is without doubt the craziest recession of all time. Now, Glenn, I want to go back to the new models that, uh, or the new model that's coming or, or already here and, and talk about um, different aspects of high-end cars that you, you in particular sell and know. But I also want to... Um, Look at the history of Maserati because, you know, I, I had the, the great uh, joy of going to Modena, which is the hometown for Maserati. Well, nowadays, I don't know, it didn't actually come out of um, Modena, did it? No, it was originally out of Bologna. Yeah, Bologna, yeah. Wow. And, 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 and I know this because when, when we were in Modena, you, you actually arranged for us to get a, a day to go and, and see the Maserati uh, team and go to the Maserati Museum and all that sort of stuff. It was fantastic. But there's some great history and I'm sure you know the story of how the Maserati family got into luxury cars. Could you share that with my listeners please? It's it's a wonderful story actually because um, uh, the region Modena where it sits 
um, is a fantastic region for supercars. But it's all come out of sort of almost one era. And uh, Maserati is one of the oldest in, in that era. Um, the brand was established in 1914. And really where it came from was there were a number of brothers, Maserati brothers, um, that were already building engines for other racing manufacturers. And they decided, why are we doing this? Why don't we do our own? So they got together in a small workshop in Bologna and um, they literally built their first car by hand. And when I say built it by hand, they did everything. They did the casting for the engine. They did the engine. They did the panels. The only things that they actually bought were the, uh, the tyres and the gauges. Everything else was hand done themselves. And they built that first car, which was the Tipo 26, and it went out in its first race in the Targa Floria um, and won its class, which is an amazing effort in, in such a long race, actually. And that began the history of Maserati all the way through. It was a racing brand and started out as a racing brand. It was a racing brand all the way through to the late 50s. Mm. And if I think back, Maserati, the Maserati brothers led by Alfieri, Bindo, Carlo, Adore, and Ernesto, they were taking on the giants of the era, Auto Union, you know, which is now Audi and the like, um, that, that with, with such limited resources, and they really punched above they, their weight. Today, it's still the only Italian car company to go out and win the Indianapolis 500 twice, but twice in a row, mm. uh, with Will Bashaw in, uh, in an 8.6, in an 8TC. But um, moving on from there, they, they built terrific and one of the best race cars ever, ever known for any Formula One aficionado is the 250F. And uh, that car was used by uh, Fangio to come home on the Nürburgring in one of the greatest, greatest races ever and uh, take out the Drivers' Championship in 1957 and indeed the um, uh, Constructors' Championship for Maserati. But really... That was the turning point for the brand. They'd reached the pinnacle. They'd won the, the, what was then the, the GP. Um, and in the, in the early 50s, they started producing road cars. And they were taking what they learned from the track and putting it on the road. And uh, that, that was such a glorious era for, for vehicle design as well, the 50s and 60s. If you go out and you look at any car collector today, that, that era just produced some of the most beautiful designs of cars. And Maserati was was right up there with the uh, 1500 GT, mm. uh, the A6, and even the 5000 GT. And, if, and Peter, if I think back to that 5000 GT, that car had 340 horsepower back in 1940, uh, 1959. Mm. It's, it's just a magnificent um, uh, history of racing. But taking that, what they learned from the track, and putting it on the road is really the, the history of Maserati. And they make what we call Grand Touring Vehicles, Grand Turismo. So it's important that we seat four people in comfort and you can get there pretty quick and enjoy the drive. Mm. And really that's the philosophy of the brand. And it's so unusual considering how conservative Italian drivers are that they wanted to create <laughs> <laughs> a, car, a car that would just get you there quickly. Now, now, that's a fantastic snapshot of um, of Maserati, but there was one story I I learned when I was um, 
toured around um, into the museum. And, and in fact, they showed me the car that Fangio draw, drove and that famous yes. race when there was a, a massive pileup and he was one of the few drivers to avoid the pileup. Have, have you come across that story before? Because it was, it was told to me by the, the tour guide who actually owns one of the biggest dairy farms in Italy and they make the greatest um, – uh, radicchio cheese or whatever cheese is that they make there. Parmigiana. Parmigiana, yeah. And, 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 I, and he told me how his father rescued the museum which was going to go to London. They, they put it on their dairy farm. Uh, but do you know that, that Fanzio story? No, I, I don't know the story exactly what you're saying, but if you're talking about the one where he, he missed all the um, – he missed the pile-up and went yeah. on to win the race, yes. Yeah, but do you know why he, he missed out on the pile-up? Because he, no. said, because he said, as he was coming up the straight, he, he was looking. And I, and I love this because this shows you what old-fashioned racing was like. And I guess when you see movies like Ford versus Ferrari, you, mm. you, you get to understand what it was like. There's no computers. It was just you know, men in there doing stuff, you know, um, really primevally. But he said, as, as he came up the straight, he, he was used to people watching you. He said, I saw everyone with their backs turned to me. And he said, I realised there must have been something that's gone on on the other side of the bend. He said, so I slowed down to go around. And sure enough, that by picking up the fact that the crowd weren't looking in their normal direction, he knew there was a sign that there was some, potentially something wrong around the other side. And I thought that was extraordinary. You know, we could all learn from that. Oh, yes, looking for the right signs. Yes. And there's another, another story as well I shared with him. Uh, when I was on that tour, and that was that that Maseratis were initially in tractors, and that the father once went to Mr. Ferrari, and he drove a Ferrari, I think, and he went. To, have you heard this story? No, that's that's Mr. Lamborghini. Oh, Mr. Lamborghini. Okay, Mr. Well, Lamborghini. Well, tell us that story anyway, because it's a very funny story, isn't it? It is. So in, in terms of the, Mr. Lamborghini, he went on to um, – he, he bought a Ferrari and, and uh, he wasn't quite happy with it and he went back to uh, explain you know, what improvements could be made and Enzo <laughs> scoffed at those improvements. So uh, Mr. Lamborghini, the, the, the very well-known tractor maker, decided, well, ah, I can do it myself. <laughs> and history goes on to prove that he may have been right. And, and, but it's it's a really interesting story. When you look at that region, Peter, um, you've you've got Maserati there, and you've got Pagani there, you've got Lamborghini there, you've got Ferrari there, and you've got Ducati there, all in this small hub with around Modena. Um, and it does that does a couple of things. Number one, the, I, I think a really nice part of it is, of all those supercar brands I just named. They're all named after the family or yeah. the family. Yeah. And I think that's such a terrific thing. Um, but secondly, if you need any expertise on supercars, guess where you go? There is nowhere better in the world than there. Yes, I, I certainly noticed that when I went to uh, one of the restaurants, uh, we couldn't get into the, into the arguably one of the best restaurants in the world. What's the name of that one that, yeah, I, I, I know the one you're talking about. I, the, I'm uh, sure they've taken you there at one stage. Yeah, I, we, the chef is, is such a character, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, Massimo uh, Bertuno. Um, 
Oh, I can't think of the name. I should know the name straight off the top of my head, but I can't think of it now. Yeah, we couldn't get in, so we went to the one across the road, but it was just filled with car people. You could you could tell from the conversations that they were talking about. Um, one, one other lovely aspect I picked up when I was being driven around the town of Modena was the fact that uh, Pavarotti's father uh, had a bakery in yes. Modena. And all the and all the people of Modena reckon that the father was a better singer than, than Pavarotti. <laughs> well, Pavarotti certainly took after uh, to, to, certainly took the baker's appetite. <laughs> he certainly. In actual fact, I actually have seen um, Pavarotti uh, where he actually did talk about his father, and he actually did say my father was a better singer than me. But it was quite quite fascinating. It's a wonderful era. Do you know why? Um, do you know why is the area famous for for car racing, for for, for, for car racing developments? Look, to, to be honest, if if you go back through the history of Bologna, um, you know, all the way back to the medieval times when um, uh, they they used to raid and and, and go on to um, fight other armies, they were well known for always being. Um, outgunned and outmanned. Mm. And as a result, they had to find engineering solutions to build, you know, to give them an advantage yeah. in warfare. And, and that engineering solution has continued through generations, as particularly amongst steel, steel mongering, if you like. Mm. Um, and that's really where it's come from at its most basic form. So the area is well well-known and well-renowned for finding uh, terrific steel-based solutions for warfare originally, but um, for, for uh, motorcraft later on in life. Mm. And that has always stuck through. So, And as you had development of brands like Maserati, uh, like Ferrari, like Lamborghini, like Pagani, um, like Ducati and, and, and other brands throughout the ages, you've seen a, a real engineering school of people just yeah. gravitate to that, that location. And as I said, if you want to build a supercar today and you want to start from scratch, the best place to do it is there. Without a doubt. Now, on the subject of new cars, tell us about the new car that Maserati has recently uh, unveiled. Look, look it, it's certainly not by design, Peter, but uh, we, we've had – Maserati has had a terrific run of uh, in, in 2020 and 2019 in terms of where we've sat with our model range and then the development of the new cars. Through the COVID-19 pandemic, Italy was hard, hard hit. It was mm. one of the hardest hit nations. And it was amazing to see, standing back, watching the product development continue even when the country was in the grips of a COVID-19 crisis, they didn't stop. Mm. And and what yeah, you know, seeing some of the the technical solutions that they put in place to develop the product over that period of time was amazing. So we're now going to start to see that product really th flow through uh, from next year. So um, at the beginning of uh, or at the end of this year, we'll see our first electric car in the Ghibli Hybrid. And that will be a Maserati take on a Ghibli hybrid. It, it, you know, our version of a hybrid, yes, it is efficient. Yes, it will deliver the efficiency of a diesel. 
but it will also deliver the power of a traditional gasoline engine. So it's fun to drive. It has good delivery of torque as opposed to just being fuel efficient um, so that you can take four people in comfort from one place to the next quickly. Mm. Um, then we have our Trofeo range, which is the pin pinnacle of the range in, in Ghibli, uh, Levante and also Quattroporte. So we, uh, we're shoehorning a 590 horsepower V8 with 730 newton metres torque into the uh, top of all of those cars. So they promise to be cracking and that, that is really our heartland for the brand. And they arrive in February. And then uh, on September 9, just coming up, we'll unveil our all new sports car the successor to the MC12, which will be the MC20. Um, and like all good Maserati cars, we've named its heart, uh, being the Detuno, is the, is the new engine on this car. And, and we're very excited. In fact, um, you know, there, there, we are waiting for, with bated breath to see the, uh, the digital reveal on this on the 9th of September. All right, so pretty soon we'll see what it looks like. Absolutely. And when will the first arrive in Australia? First one should be here about July next year. Mm. And, and that's the one thing that must frustrate you as well, that when you get a great product, you get a, a flood of people wanting to buy, but there still is a queue and there's still a waiting time, isn't there? Look, like all good things, Peter, you have to wait. <laughs> I knew you'd have a, an answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, it builds the excitement, mm. um, you know, Maserati is an emotional brand. We're not a practical brand. Um, and as such, you know, there, there is an emotional curve to the purchase. And um, for something at the very high end, you know, this car is going to be um, uh, positioned quite high in terms of its um, positioning in the marketplace here. Uh, it needs to be emotional. It'll be hard to get. Mm. The production will be tight and the car will be very hard to get. Mm. And, of course, a lot of people who, who may well not bought a car like this before, when you buy a Maserati, you actually can uh, put a lot of specs into it yourself, can't you? Like the, the leather you want, the colours you want and all that sort of stuff. There is a lot of that bespoking, if such a word exists. There is. Even on our um, – if, if I look at Levante, our, our SUV, you can configure – 70,000 different combinations on that car, mm. on the base car. So, so it's an amazing feat from, from a production point of view that they can handle that. Mm. Um, once we go further up into the range, you can bespoke that car to an infinite number of combinations because if you like the colour of your sweater and that's the colour you want your car, we will do it um, within reason. Mm. I guess one last question, mate. Um... If you, if you could dream of anything that would bring us back to normalcy quicker than anything else, would it be a vaccine ASAP? Yeah, a, a vaccine is needed quickly. Um, not just for the normality of our, our, our economic life, but I think also for the social contact that we crave. Mm. Um, yeah, as if, if you look across different nations. So, so, for example, Japan, when they meet, they bow. So there's no contact. If you look at Italians and, you know, when they meet, there's 
significant contact. Yes. Normally kissing. Lots of kissing, yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and, and we're we're very similar. We shake hands. Mm. Um, so there's lots of touch. And I, I on a personal note, I miss that greeting. Um, and I, I miss the, the 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 personal contact that you have. And I think that contact having a lack of that contact also takes away a little bit of our lifestyle as well. So yeah, I'm I'm sitting here thinking not just from a, a professional perspective in terms of a vaccine, but I would love to see a vaccine just from a social perspective as well. Okay. Just before we go, if people want to see the the latest car that you guys unveiled, where do they go? Uh, if they go on to maserati.com.au mm. um, and they search up MC20, they'll be asked to um, click for an invite to an event on the 9th of September. Great stuff. Thanks very much for joining us, Glenn, and good luck. And I'll keep my fingers crossed that we all buy lots of Maseratis in the future. Well, I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> well, it's that time in the show when we do a little ad. And if you'd prefer to be rich rather than poor, and you think you might need some help, go to switzerstore.com.au and buy yourself a copy of my new book, Join the Rich Club. It sells for $24.95 plus postage and handling. And they're all the facts that I guess you need to know. But when you think about it, I reckon getting richer is much better than allowing yourself to get poorer. So just think about it. If you can't do it yourself and you need a bit of help, go and get yourself the book. This next story is a really interesting one. Um, I know I can't say this, so I won't say this is a sort of an agricultural business run by a Sheila because that's what stupid old men used to say in the old days and out in the bush. And of course, I wouldn't even dare think about saying something like that. But this is a story of, a, of an agricultural or horticultural business run by a, a very, very enterprising, successful woman. And uh, she has diversity in her leadership teams. And I just think the story is so interesting. It tells us about an old industry, namely agriculture, being run in a very modern way. And I'd like to welcome Catherine Villicia to our program. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. See, the reason why I thought you were a farmer, because the name of your business is Villicia National Farms. Well, we, we are a horticulture business, so we, we are nowhere without our farms. Um, we have lots of farms, either our own or partner growers that grow for us, um, and our business is vegetables so it's it's not a it's not a lie no a, no and and it's definitely all, all to do with farms yeah, okay and Valicia is that Cypriot or is that Albanian that's Albanian yeah. um so my grandfather came to Albania with his two brothers and came they, to Australia from Albania Australia, sorry from yeah. Albania in about 1939 yep think about that time um, and they originally were dairy farmers out here in Werribee, so they pretty much came in. That was that was the general um, yeah. kind of farming, sheep and, and dairy. Um, then what happened was the war started and some of the soldiers at the Pakopanyal base needed vegetables and someone else started growing vegetables down here. So they got on board with that and then from there they just continued. And, and Werribee South now is a really... Um, highly horticulture, vegetable-driven area. We supply about 40% of uh, all of Victoria's vegetables. Oh, mm. cauliflowers and broccoli. So it's a huge amount. Yeah, because yeah, and don't take this as, as offensive because, you know, some people might, but you, you really have a great Australian accent as though you actually do come from the bush. 
I really do have a terrible Australian accent, actually. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great accent. Whenever I hear myself, I'm like, could I sound any more Australian? <laughs> but it doesn't sound punsy, you know, Turak or, or oh, something. Punsy, that's no. one thing that I'll never be on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but and I hope people who are listening to us realise that this is a very interesting story. Tell us about... Valicia National Farms, how big are an operation? What do you do? So, well, yeah, we're, we're a farming and horticulture business, yep. so an integrated horticulture business. Um, we supply the major supermarkets and the main wholesale markets in Australia, um, and we do do some export, and that's probably something we're going to explore more. Yeah. The lines that we do are your traditional lines, which are actually become very popular now. Everyone's at home and yeah. cooking. So. yeah. Broccoli, your collie, um, zucchini, celery, spring onions, kale. Mm. So they're our main lines. Yeah. Um, and then we've, we've really seen a bit of an uptake in this um, COVID environment, not yeah. only because of, um, obviously people are shopping, but I think they're the things that people eat at home opposed yeah. to baby spinach and, you know, they're more your restaurants. So that's been good for us. Um, so, yeah, we, we service the, the major supermarkets and it's a seven-day-a-week operation in all operations, as horticulture is. Yeah. Um, there's lots of components and I guess this is where that diversity angle comes in. I don't think people, when they think of horticulture enterprises, realise how many uh, how many different roles there are and how many very normal, I guess, job roles that there are that people think of in other industries that exist in our, our business as well. And I'm talking about like sales and, um, you know, production managers, warehouse salesmen, mechanics. Packing. Packers, mm. yes. But I think what we do as an industry, we kind of really limit who we show as people. Mm. So I think it's either like you're a packer, you know, or a worker. Mm. That's one career. There's the owner, which is not really that tangible of a career for people because that's generally been, you know, given to you or, or you know, it's been rolled. And then there's like that scientist, you know, that's doing, you know, that's splitting the atom and creating a green carrot or something like that. But mm. there's such a birth of roles in between and so many careers and, you know, and I guess our workforce is one that can really talk about that and the opportunities that it's, that it's given people, and I felt like what what I guess I like about it is kind of like it's it's a full circle kind of story where you know it's that migrant risk and resilient mindset that set up the business originally with you know my mm. grandfather, yeah. and now driving it forward. You know, 50, 60 odd years later, still driving that forward. You know, using those inherent um, characteristics, I guess, of of people who you know. Uh, migrants it, it it's it's not you know i don't think i don't know really but you know and, and i look at the boys and i think i couldn't do what you do in a, another country if i had to go there and i would not be mm. succeeding like you do <laughs> no doubt yeah look uh, there are many issues i want to talk to you about um and 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 i've, I've got to say as i listen to you the probably the reason why i uh, headed towards this story was that my dad was a provador who supplied cafes and restaurants with fruit and vegetables, you know, based in the city markets in Sydney. And, you know, uh, our suppliers were Chinese, Italian, you know, my my uncle married an Italian girl, you know. So, and I can, I can remember when, you know, Woolworths became the fresh food people, you know, and the, mm-hmm. and the very 
very strange Italian. Oh, yeah, the very strange Italian people who invaded the markets with their big trucks, and it was basically it was quite an aggressive time because there weren't very many parking spaces in the in the markets, and so they paid the the truck minders, as they they were called in those days, to give them the spots. So I can remember, yeah, market wars in many ways. I was at university, and I was. I, my, my reward to becoming um, getting a scholarship at university was my father gave me a, a ute, a leather apron, and um, eight restaurants in um, in Sydney to deliver to. So I was at the markets every morning of my life. So I, I'm really interested in where this stuff came from, and you're you're a part of that story. Tell us how how you, your family was able to grow this business. You know, because coming from Albania. He, I don't think it would have come with a lot of money, and it would have been. And dairy farming was an okay industry in the old days. Um, but how how did they actually grow into the national farms business? So um, my grandfather, with his two brothers, started the the vegetable farming business, and you know it was back, you know, before the kind of the wild west times you were talking about. Mm. But you know, it was really like you filled up the truck. Mm. And you drove it into the city and you sold it. And that still evolved. So then obviously everyone had children. My dad, um, all the boys worked on the farm because that's those times. Girls didn't really work on the farm, particularly mm. being a migrant um, background. So the boys worked on the farm. Um, and then they all went, they all went as, a Valicia, as a Valicia business altogether. Um, so then they decided that one of a couple of them would go into the wholesale market to, get to, I guess, become more profitable, you know, mm-hmm. so to control the, the supply chain. Um, and then as, you know, everyone does, uh, people go their own ways. Um, everyone kind of had different ideas and young men have, you know, want to want to spread their own ideas. So um, all the cousins really split. And my dad started as, the, as Valley Valicia in the wholesale market. So mm-hmm. he ran that business up until... Uh, three years ago, which I bought off him mm. and renamed Valicia National Farms because I think that really suggests better what we are and Valley Valicia is no longer a part of it. So mm. much to much to his disgust, his name got the flick. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you you young people, you just always have to change things. Yeah, go on. I kept the last name. Surely that's, that's good enough. <laughs> All right, so, so um, yeah, and, and of course – you know, family businesses, they invariably have these kinds of things where cousins want to go their own ways. So so how long have you been steering the ship for now? So uh, as, as, as sole owner, three years, but um, I've, been, I've been a part of this business since I was 19. Yeah. Um, it hasn't always been a love affair. Um, it was more out of necessity than, than love for a long time. Um, yeah. I've, I was just trying to find my feet and things like that. And then I, in my 20s, I still worked in the business, but I went off and did some different studies and things like that, um, thinking that, you know, I don't, but as I did more and opened up my horizons, I really realised how much opportunity and how much I enjoyed some of the inherent strengths of the business. Yep. So by doing that kind of, yeah, by, by reaching out and, you know, doing, you know, I did a youth work degree and, and, and an economics degree and then did some different things as I kept working. But it really just opened up my eyes at the opportunity. Dad was getting to a stage where he wanted to restructure the business. And um, the conversation was that we'd be working too close together. So I thought, I can't have this. <laughs> so I pretty much gave the ultimatum. It's either you or me. Um, I'll 
I'll buy it and you go off and he's in Brisbane now enjoying the sun. So he's really one out of this one. And, and I'm in um, Victoria in lockdown. So <laughs> well, I'm, sure he's not, I'm sure he's not regretting anything that's happened in the last few years. <laughs> no. Have you ever hung out with um, you know, like young entrepreneur groups and things like that that actually have made you more aspirational to take over the family business? No, I, no, I've always been, I've always been like very, you know, aspirational, I guess, but just I never thought of it in this space, if mm. that if that makes sense. And yeah. then I just, it was really just like a bit of a flick. And now, and I'm a very restless person, so I don't, I get bored very easily. So it's just the constant. Once something's, you know, about eighty percent settled, yeah. I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. That's too boring. Where's the next yeah. headache coming from? So yeah. okay, so that really means then. Uh, a part of your success story has to be having great people that you recruit and effectively become leaders of different parts of the business. Because you, if if you're saying after eighty percent you want to walk away, you have to live in the hands of pretty good people. And I, and I and I know from the story that you know um, there's diversity there. And I think you make the ref, reference that uh, when you go to some sort of conferences that. I think one of your leaders is an Indian and you're a female and I guess you're in horticultural business where it's st- still often a lot of men. Um, yeah. So how, how are you received with your unusual leadership team? Uh, and, and I guess you even, even your experience at the, at the retail level because a lot of buyers are still probably men as well. Yeah, look, I think um, – the, the experience of me being a woman in this industry is probably not a fair experience or a representation of other women as mm. because I've always had a bubble of support being being of known family and having family members all within the industry and things mm. like that. So I would not want to speak on behalf of everyone's experience because I know some people have had some really tumultuous experiences mm. um, in this industry and there's been some probably some really, you know, horrible things that... But as, as it's evolved, and it really has evolved, um, horticulture, because there's so many different, like I was talking about earlier, so many different job roles now available that women have naturally filled in different with their strengths and they have filled in different um, uh, places. But, yes, at the top of the tree, there's not that many women. And, you know, I hope that changes. But, again, it's, it, a lot of this is people don't really go and buy a horticulture business when they're in another industry. So a lot of these businesses are just kind of family fed. So to see that diversity at the top is going to be less likely than in industries where people buy businesses because obviously there's less lack, lack of diversity in the, in, the, in the chain of who's handing the businesses down. Mm. Um, but definitely when I talk about the, the leaders of our business, um, for an industry that relies heavily on a migrant workforce, it is still so surprising that none of the key positions, and um, you know, I'm sure there is, but but not not regularly, key positions are held by any representatives of that of that workforce. Mm. Well, was that a conscious decision of yours that okay, I've got lots of say um, Asian workers, therefore I'd like to have a, a part of my management team someone who who really gets the Asian worker better than say you know an Aussie who went to you know Geelong Grammar or whatever. It was. It wasn't. Yeah, it was a conscious decision, but not kind of in that term. I took over the business, and I sat down with my and I thought, what does this business need to take it to the next step and become the the thing that I think it needed? 
So there was holes up above. So we've always had a very good core group of workers. There was this management gap above. And what I really wanted to do was offer who I thought was talented in the business, those management gaps, but be with a very brutal conversation saying, uh, this is where this is what we need in these roles. This is the gap between where you are and where to get there. I will facilitate that growth. But so it's up to you and I'll help you do that. But this is what we need. And I'm not going to let the business suffer because you can't be that or won't be that. But, and, and you know, but I was really like, the last thing I want you to do is, the last thing I want to do is in 10 years time, me hire all these people outside um, and you come up to me and say, hang on a minute, I've been doing this job for the last 10 years. So I gave them the opportunity, credit to me, but they took the opportunity, credit to them, and became the people that the business needed. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wasn't going to sacrifice the business for a, for a, you know, a holistic, beautiful story that this has turned into be. That was what was it? So it's not. I'm not a saint by any stretch, mm. but I thought it was really unfair that the people who had kind of done the groundwork, the grind, didn't at least get the opportunity. And 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 like I've said, they've more than taken the opportunity. Okay. They're- so tell me this, Catherine, have you shared your dream of how big this business can be with your team? And if so, will you share it with us? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I do share share it with them. But I must admit, I'm not. I'm. We're not really a kind of meeting, you know, um, vision on the board kind of team. We're yeah. very. Um, we're kind of like get it done, and you know, there's not. I, it's not. If anything, it's probably not a really modern workplace in that kind of. Um, you know, it's no Google. There's no. There's no. Um, yeah. table tennis going on and there's no you know yoga retreats we come into work we talk about work yeah. we do our work yeah. you know it's it's yeah. the way the way you speak makes me think yeah that would that would that fits in pretty well yeah yeah it's a yeah. bit old school really to yeah. be perfectly honest yeah. but um well I, I what what we see i guess our next our next process here is um so Valicia Farms, the boys, the boys really do manage that to such an extent that I am now pretty much a mentor and and just in those higher end conversations with with our bigger customers and things like that, strategy based, yeah. they're operational. But the next step for us is um we're going to be building an RTO here on site. RTO, come on, we've got normal people listening. Sorry, to a registered training organisation. Yep. Because we want to uh, run two courses that we feel like. Uh, uh, just um, imperative for horticulture as an industry, but also business. But so we will be doing a, a OHS a certificate for yep. because, as you know, most um, most uh, fatalities happen on on farms. Mm. So it's a huge, huge, yeah. huge, even more than construction compared to how much our um, our, our sale our. Yeah, capacity is. So yeah. that's a huge, but also we'll be doing an advanced um, diploma in horticulture, which will focus on all these business skills that I'm talking about. So what my hope is that the industry will create leaders from within by running them through these courses. Mm, great idea. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's the next thing. That's our vision. And then we probably want to take that 
overseas, to be honest. Um, so then we have a funnel of, of, of workers that really add benefit to our industry because I think that's our, pro- our industry is a little bit stagnated. We have this owner model, this group of workers, and there's this big gap in the middle that we need to really close. When are you going to become listed like the Costa Group? <laughs> <laughs> is that an aspiration? Would you like to be a listed company one day? Oh, uh, no, well, yeah, I, I never say never. Yeah. I, I'm always open to ideas. Yeah. yeah. The only problem with being a listed company is that a lot of people watch what you do and and they can start bossing you around as a consequence of all the rules and regulations. You don't look easily bossable <laughs> for my liking. But so a lot of people who started businesses are in that sort of situation. All right, last question. No, no two, two last questions. First question is, what is the best question I should have asked you which I haven't asked you so far? To get, for us to understand Belisha National Farms. What is the characteristic of the leadership team and yourself that make Valicia so um, different, I think? Okay, that's a question I'm asking you now. Give me an answer. I think it's uh, I think it's the mutual respect. I think they genuinely respect the opportunities that the model has created them and I genuinely respect them for their tenacity in doing everything they have had to upskill themselves right from the beginning of their journey but even I'm talking about in just the last section of here's your gap, here's, here you're, here's your gap and, and the ability that they were to take such robust criticism and, you know, like mm. your English is not good enough, you're never going to be able to be a salesman, like go have an English lesson, you know, yeah. like that's hard stuff to take yeah. I don't know how I would take if someone sat me down and you know and they've done it and and I guess that's what it is it's that real respect mm. respect for each other okay last question and this comes from a guy who you know has a background in vegetables Kale, like like where that come from where, where it was never around when I was a young guy and like well, it was at what? What what'd they call it in those days? All then? the Italians were growing it, but none of us whiteies knew what it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't sold in the market, so I don't think. But uh, but yeah, so it's been. A, it's not like a a hybrid vegetable that was invented. Um, it's just been around for for years, and no one used to use it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's come on with the run of the brassica. Let's be honest. The brassicas mm. were, you know, a brassica, a collie broccoli. Mm. They were they've been out of fashion, and then you know they've come back too. So it's just that I think natural alignment that mm. you know another version of that but who yeah. it's you know it's i love it i really it's probably my favorite vegetable yeah okay well it seems to me that you know i resisted because it wasn't there when i was a young man and, and it just seems to be the, the uh, owned by all the trendies and the you know the organic people of the world which is nothing wrong with that by the way but it's just Kale just seems to be thrown in everything. And anyway, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. Um, And it's been great to talk to you, Catherine. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Yeah, same to you. Well, that's the end of the show. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be looking for more interesting people. I'm out there trying to get Paul Murray for next week's show. Quentin time! Quentin time!